If you have an institution where someone isn't in charge of enforcing the standards, what you have is an institution that is soon wallowing in distrust. Welcome to Acton Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. In this episode, Acton's librarian and research associate, Dan Huger, speaks with lawyer and chair of Common Good, Philip K. Howard, about his new book, Everyday Freedom, Designing the Framework for a Flourishing Society. Why do so many people feel so powerless today? How is it important for people to experience everyday freedom at work, in school, and in all of life? What forces in American life today stifle our sense of freedom and responsibility, and how can they be countered to ensure a flourishing society for all? And what special role do people of faith have in empowering others in their community to realize their freedom and responsibility? You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Welcome. My name is Dan Huger, Librarian and Research Associate at the Acton Institute. Today I am joined by Philip K. Howard, lawyer and chair of Common Good, a nonpartisan organization aimed at replacing red tape with human responsibility. He is also a best-selling author of many books, including The Death of Common Sense, How Law is Suffocating America, and Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. Today, we'll be discussing his latest book, which is now hot off the presses, Everyday Freedom, Designing the Framework for a Flourishing Society, published by Rodan Books. Philip, welcome to Act in Line, and thank you for being with us. Great to be with you, Dan. So, Everyday Freedom begins with a very powerful and striking claim in, like, the first, I think, the first two pages, you say, powerlessness has become a defining feature of modern society. And it's a very sort of existential observation, which has both a a sort of psychological and a sociological dimension. Could you unpack what this feeling of powerless feels like for people on sort of a personal level, and then what it looks like as people go through their day-to-day lives? Yeah. um, Well, just on the second, I mean, somebody goes to the office they're, you know, they can't possibly be spon- t- tell a joke because somebody might be offended by it, right? Yeah. You know, particularly, how do you call it? Uh, uh, someone leaves the firm, they want a job reference. The firm will say, no, we don't give job references. We only confirm that they work here because they're afraid they might get sued. Um, uh, you get notes all the time. Have you completed this year's DEI training? Yeah. Or any harassment training. Um, if you're in a um, um, a, a factory setting, you you're, you're constantly being told to comply with this regulation and that regulation. You know, is your paperwork in order for the um, OSHA inspector? And a lot of that is 
is literally sort of absurd. Like, do you have material safety data sheets for anything that might be hazardous, including, well, in one case, the company got a got a fine for not having a safety sheet for joy dishwashing liquid. Um, you know, that sort yeah. of thing. So you find yourself, people find themselves kind of overwhelmed by these requirements, all of which kind of repress their spontaneity. Mm-hmm. And and at this point, have actually more or less suffocated spontaneity. You'd be a fool to say what you really think in almost any public setting. Yeah. So you've got you've got this pressure. When you were talking about those work requirements, I remember I had a I had a cousin who years ago used to work for UPS, and he always told me that it was a mistake when he accepted a management position because all of a sudden, he's he's you know supervising the line and a package would fall off the conveyor belt, and his management he could no longer simply pick up that package and put it back on the belt because according right. to the union contract that was reserved for the for the unionized workforce and not for management. Right, right. So so in every, um, you know, I had this book um, last year that got a lot of attention about public employee unions and their collective bargaining agreements, um, uh, just apropos, they could prevent managers from making any adaptive choices during the day. Uh, I had a friend who was a deputy mayor under Mayor Bloomberg who wanted to go around and ask um civil servants, if they had any ideas about how better to you know, perform the public services. And he told, he was told that would be unlawful as direct dealing, that you could only negotiate with the union rep. So you have a system of government that is quite literally unmanageable, that everything has to be, you know, where some, what desk somebody sits in has to be, has to be negotiated. Uh, in healthcare, um, Doctors and nurses spend half their day filling out forms, and it's that, and and it causes burnout because they're constantly having to having to to comply with these systems that don't make any sense. I mean, I'll tell you another story. So, um, a friend of mine was uh, president of Johns Hopkins, and and he he's talking to a doctor. He's a doctor. He's a he he was having his conversation with a doctor friend who. Who, whose reimbursement form kept getting bounced by the insurance company. Why is it being bounced? Why is it being bounced? Finally got a real person on the line, right? And, and why is it being bounced? Because you didn't check the box that said, have you asked the patient whether she was a smoker? And the doctor said, I didn't check that box because the patient is two years old. <laughs> oh, you, know, you, know, you, know, you know, so you, so you have these... These systems in in schools and hospitals, really everywhere, um, that kind of press down on people so that they no longer feel they can be themselves. And then when they look at the big picture, they see a government, Washington in particular, that can't do anything. It can't give a permit for a transmission line that everybody agrees is needed. Even the president doesn't have authority to do that. And I. So it's, so you have this system that's literally paralyzed it. 
Yeah. So you have these people that become they become alienated from their work, they become alienated from their government, and and it's sort of a they don't experience what you what you call in the book, and you develop this concept of everyday freedom. Um, and everyday freedom also has a sort of psycho- psychological and a sociological dimension. What is everyday freedom? What when people have everyday freedom? How do their lives look different? How does their experience as 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 workers, managers, citizens, how does that how does right, that feel different? Right. It's 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 replacing a compliance model of law and society with a human responsibility model. So you don't you you can tell people what to do. You can't pollute. You've got to have a safe workplace, stuff, but you can't tell them how to do it without ultimately creating this system of central planning. And one thing I didn't mention, but is important to me personally, and maybe uh, relevant to Acton, um, we've, my father was a minister. And so when he, when I was growing up in a little town in Southern Georgia, um, uh, I would follow around with him. He would minister to the prisoners in the work camps, mm-hmm. you know, and he would build missions and that sort of thing. Big government has really repressed that. I mean, they've they've made it very hard for communities and particularly churches to uh, take ownership of social services. And if we want to rebuild a, a coherent society where people feel um, a sense of pride because they're they're owning their own communities, you know, they're taking ownership for the homeless person and figuring out who that person is and all of that. They need the authority to do that. They can't comply with some distant bureaucratic requirements. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's giving people the freedom to do things in their own ways. It's not quote deregulation. There are lots of, you know, we, we have a society where there are lots of externalities, right? So yeah. you want law to not you know, not only to protect against crimes and all that, but to make sure that we feel confident that the water we're drinking isn't polluted, et cetera. So so the government and the workplaces we're in are reasonably safe. Um uh but that doesn't mean you have to turn that into, you know, a kind of a central planning model. Yeah. And there's and there's a there's a historical argument that you make in your book that's that's nestled into you know how did we get from the world in which people like your father felt the sort of everyday freedom to reach out to reach out to prisoners to start missions to start programs um, and to start ministries what's the what's the historical account of how that everyday freedom was lost and and what motivated those sorts of changes in law and culture and that that really changed the the fabric of american life yeah it's 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 so funny and it's so clear i mean there is a straight line mm-hmm. <laughs> so so what happened is is that we woke up to a number of abuses and, and and bad social values in the 1960s. Uh, segregation, pollution, unsafe cars, gender discrimination, lies about Vietnam, 
uh, ending up with a sort of the maraschino cherry of this culture, this decade of distrust with Watergate in yeah. 1972. And, and, and so we needed to change our values, and we did. We had the civil rights laws, and we had the Environmental Protection Act, and uh, you know, safety standards for cars, et cetera. But, but the culture of distrust motivated uh, the, the brilliant people in charge that not only did they want to change their values, but they wanted to guarantee that there could never again be an abuse of authority. And so they changed the way we governed. And there were three tools that they came up with to do that. The first tool was to tell, not only tell people what they had to do and give them principles like the constitution, you know, know, free speech or no uh, unreasonable searches and seizures or whatever, you know, that's fine. And they they can be interpreted. They wanted to tell people exactly what to do. So we've never, never such thing as a thousand page rule book before the 1960s. And all of a sudden we had a worker safety law that had 4,000 rules. Um, uh, stairwell shall be lit by natural or artificial light. That's helpful. I mean, how yeah. else are they going to be lit? You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, pages on what an industrial grade hammer should look like. I mean, it's crazy stuff, um, crazy detail. And then for things where you couldn't have a rule, like whether to give a permit for a transmission line or something, you would have processes. And these legal processes uh, had the presumption that that the correct answer could be objectively determined. And so we now have environmental review processes, which are generally good ideas to inform a judgment. But if, if you have them replace the judgment, they never stop. So literally, we have thousands of pages of no pebble left unturned. They don't illuminate environmental choices. They obscure them in thousands of pages of detail. And they can go on for a decade or longer, these things. And ultimately, whether you build a power line is not a matter of objective proof. It's a matter of trade-offs. Do we value the the clean energy coming from the wind farm more? Do we value the views or, or the, you know, can we build it on the wetland or not? You know, we get clean energy if we do that, you know? Yeah. So all, you know, public choices all involve trade-offs and it, it, it's not quote right or wrong, black or white. And so these proceed, you know, uh, the teachers have lost the authority to maintain order in the classroom. They have to be prepared to prove in a hearing that Johnny threw the pencil first. Well, how do you do that? You call other students as witnesses? I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it's you know, it, 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 it's sort of crazy. So the second thing was this idea of process that goes on forever. Mm-hmm. And, and the third thing, I mean, how do you prove somebody's not a good worker? You know, so, so in, in, you know, how do you prove somebody's not a good writer, doesn't try hard, doesn't cooperate, doesn't, you know, all those things, none of those things are, readily provable right you you can you can second guess the judgments but they involve human judgment um and the third thing was the idea of individual rights got completely changed uh before the 60s the idea of individual rights hallowed idea of individual rights was protections against state coercion government can't take your property away or tell you what to say it was a shield 
against state power. The new idea, writes, is a sword by any angry person who claims that any decision is unfair to them in the workplace, anywhere. So now you have people you know, making decisions just to just to avoid the litigation with somebody. You you keep an employee that's dragging down the entire office because you don't want to deal with their claimed rights. You know, it's just too much trouble. There's no um, in the public sector. Uh, there's basically zero accountability because it's almost impossible to prove in a hearing that a teacher that everybody knows is horrible and bores the students and all that is, is no good. So like in, in, in there's an 18 year study in Illinois that found that um, an average of two of 95,000 teachers a year were dismissed for poor performance. Yeah. Think about that. And they've got they've got really lousy schools, so so it's a you know and and the, and the problem with no accountability is not that just that you need to get rid of bad people, which you do, is it it's like letting the air out of the balloon. Everybody knows performance doesn't matter, so the culture of a place kind of sinks and it becomes a kind of saggy, discouraged place rather than a place with energy and pride and the Paul Volcker had a bunch of commissions on civil service where he talked about this he said that basically it's nothing more discouraging than being in a place where everybody knows performance doesn't matter mm -hmm. yeah so we've talked we've talked a little bit about the consequences of this loss the, the sort of dispirited state that this sort of circumstances this sort of uh, legal regime can can lead individuals and institutions um, but you identify another casualty of this this sort of legal regime as well in the book, which is the entire concept of the common good. And you make an argument that 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 these, this preoccupation with potential violations of individual rights also weakens our sense of there being a common good, and that affects you know common goods not only of of of, of government. But of of organizations and institutions as well. As well, how how does that work out? Yeah, it's a it's interesting. Um, I mean, you know, people sometimes say, "Well, government suffers a management problem." And I say, "No, government's suffering from a philosophy problem." <laughs> There's a wrong philosophy, and so uh, um, you know, noted former Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. You know, hundred years ago. Um, once said that um, one of the most important aspects of law is to take into account considerations of social advantage. In other words, law itself involves trade-offs and compromises and such. And we and, um, and and philosopher John Rawls in 1970, you know, a very famous philo liberal philosopher said that individual rights were not subject to the calculation of social interest. So just the opposite. You have to do whatever somebody wants. Now, if individual rights means you can't take somebody's property away, then fine, that's great. But if individual rights means you don't like the power line and society needs the power line, then all of a sudden 
you have a society that can't name it. It can't deal with the homelessness problem. It can't build modern infrastructure. It can't it, it can't run a school. Uh, last year, there were 23 schools in Baltimore where not one student is proficient in math. And they have no authority to change anything in those schools. So, I mean, because of, quote, individual rights of the teachers or whatever, you know, so so you just can't run a society that way. Yeah, you you can't you can't develop a consensus, and you can't craft the compromises that are sort of necessary for a civilization. Right, and and of course, the most obvious paradox we haven't talked about yet is honoring these so-called rights undermines everybody else's rights. Yeah. So 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 the rights of the disruptive kid in the classroom, honoring those means that the other twenty nine children don't have the right to learn because one disruptive kid takes up all the attention and nobody can learn anything. So, and that's true throughout. So modern concept of rights is, is incoherent because it not only destroys the common good, it destroys everyone else's rights. Yeah. Now you've identified how changes in the law have led to the erosion of this sense of individual freedom and these in this in this erosion of the common right. good. Is there a path back to that sort of way of living in everyday freedom through through either 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 reforming some of these legislation, uh, some of these legislative initiatives that 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 you know find that find their roots in the sixties and seventies, or or are there are there other sort of cultural mechanisms to push back on this? And what would th- what would that look like? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's a good question. I um, good leadership can't deal with this. Excuse me, or, 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 or not good leadership alone because. These these rules and these procedures and these rights are embedded in law. So, so the the teacher literally doesn't have the authority to manage the manage school. The principal literally doesn't have the authority to manage the school. So you have to change you have to change systems from this compliance rights model to a human responsibility and accountability model, which is, again, how the our country was framed. That's what the, the Constitution is. Um, and, and that requires um, a whole series, basically, of, of expert commissions, area by area, say, okay, we're going to replace these 10 million words of, of law here with a set of... Um, principles and goals, and it's going to be 10,000 words of law or whatever, and and clear lines of authority and accountability. I'll give you an example of how that works. Yeah. Um, a couple of decades ago in Australia, they had terrible nursing homes, just as America, by the way, had terrible nursing homes. Um, and they were regulated with a stick rule book, told everybody exactly how to do everything in the nursing home. Somebody had the bright idea of scrapping the rule book and replacing it with 31 general principles. Have a home-like setting, respect the dignity of the residents, stuff like that. They were, still, they were still regulated, but they were regulated in accord with these principles. 
the experts said, oh, boy, these nursing home operators are going to get away with murder. You know, we hate to think what's going to happen now. They came in a year later, and what they discovered were the nursing homes were twice as good. Mm -hmm. And the reason they were good is because people now came into work and they focused on what the residents needed, not on compliance with these thousand pages of rules. Yeah. And and it didn't let the nursing home operator do whatever he wanted. It was still subject to regulatory oversight. And in fact, it empowered residents and their families to make suggestions about how better to do things. So the response wasn't, no, that's not in the rules. The response is, oh, that's interesting. Maybe that would make a better home-like setting or whatever. Yeah. People would sit down and talk and discuss it. So there was innovation, but it, but it became human. These are human enterprises, just like schools and hospitals are human enterprises. They require responding to the needs of each human. And that's what the system ought to look like. I've done a lot of work on infrastructure uh, permitting reform and testified for Congress a bunch of times and stuff. And there, it's really clear what's needed are clear lines of authority to resolve the inevitable disagreements among the 17 different agencies <laughs> that have jurisdiction over you know, the, the transmission line. And if you don't have those clear lines of authority to make those trade-offs and take those risks and whatever, it will never get built. Yeah. So this is this is this is interesting because you spend a lot of time, and I think I think it's I think it's I think it's a, I think it's a good it's a good amount of time thinking through issues in the book about the erosion of social trust and institutional authority, and that those two things are both sort of major obstacles to any sort of reform. And this is one of those things where, you know, when, when you need clear lines of authority, you also need people to buy into that. They need to trust that authority. They need to feel right. comfortable letting go of this regulatory apparatus. Um, and and how, do you, how do you build that trust back up? When you had, you know, we talked about, you know, you know, the, the the tumult of the '60s and '70s. A lot of people fell out of love with authority for, in many cases, very good reasons. But we've seen the sort of dead end that that leads to. But how do you rebuild that trust among among citizens and and, and citizens' trust in institutions? Really good question. First of all, America has never liked, never trusted government. I mean, Tocqueville talked about it. Oh yeah, We're, yeah. You know, so, 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 there's always been a healthy distrust of authority in this country, and that's fine. I don't trust authority either. My brothers, my two older brothers, used to get me up on the seesaw and then get off. You know, so <laughs> yeah. it taught me how to taught me how to distrust people. Mm -hmm. The um, so it's like the phrase trust but trust but verify. Um, so so it's important for the, the people who have authority to do their job well. But there are two things I would say about it. the authority that I'm talking about in almost every setting, including a job or whatever, is more like a sentry on the sidelines guarding against people 
you know, straying off into left field or doing something awful. It's not authority to dictate day-to-day choices. It's a, it's a, um, the, the framework, freedom actually has a formal framework, which is law sets outer boundaries of what's prohibited, no pollution, no discrimination, whatever. And in that, that so the same boundaries define a field of freedom where people can do whatever they want. And within that field of freedom, people need to be free to, to make moral choices and to decide which other people they have values in common with and they want to work with or associate with. Morality is a really key aspect of freedom that's been taken away by this legal compliance model. So if you're running an institution, a university, a firm, whatever, the university needs to say, these are our values and standards. We have to perform at this rate. That's the standard of performance. We have to be nice to each other. We don't tolerate immoral behavior of whatever sort, you know, not telling the truth, et cetera. And, and they're there to make sure people meet the standards and don't violate the standards. But in general, those people inside are dealing with each other and they're free to do that. And, uh, and, and so it's not trusting somebody to, to be a dictator. If someone's a dictator, then you're not going to trust them because it's going to suffocate you just as badly as the law suffocates you right, yeah. today. Um, so there'll be people who run institutions that are good and people who are not good. And hopefully the people who are not good will be accountable to the, to, um, to the people above them or the people who own the firm or whatever. And, you know, there are a lot of ways to safeguard against bad choices. So. I had this argument with the head of the teachers union at one point. I said, you don't need these impossible processes. Just appoint a parent teacher committee. They know the teachers and give them the authority to veto a termination. They know who the good teachers and the bad teachers are. Fine. Um, you know, there, there are ways to put in speed bumps to make sure people aren't treated unfairly. And I think it's, as you say, trust Freedom is all about trust. The rule of law is all about trust. It's about trusting that when you walk down the street, you won't be robbed uh, and someone won't run a stop sign. And the food you buy in the grocery store is not adulterated. It's all about trust. And trust dramatically enhances freedom because you can move forward. And so if you have an institution where someone isn't in charge of enforcing the standards, what you have is an institution that is soon wallowing in distrust because no one trusts that the other people are meeting their standards or doing their job. And again, a lot of studies on that. Absolutely. Now, everyday freedom isn't just something as you as you described in the book that 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 people exercise when when the when the institutional constraints are right but it's also something that that communities exercise that 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 sort of civil society organizations do we talked about this you know religious groups do this sort of thing people come together on this sort of playing field and cooperate in all sorts of ways how how do we in, 
encourage that? How do we encourage not only, you know, let's say we get we let's say we get the legal rules and processes right or we make some we we make some ground up there's also a way that we have to be sort of re-socialized into doing this these sorts of things and i and i think community life is 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 where it, it seems to me that it's natural to start um, when you're talking about rebuilding social trust, it's much easier to rebuild it among you know people you have a face-to-face relationship with. Um, those you know those parent-teacher boards. It's a lot easier to build that cohesion and trust back up at that level than it is to you know let's say get people to buy into trusting Congress. <laughs> um, right. There's 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 baby steps there. How do you see if if we can get the laws and the systems right? How do you see us getting back to a place where we have that flourishing society? Really important question. Uh, as you say, trust trust is a human. Uh, it, it generally is a result of face to face relationships. There are studies that show that people with markedly different political views, when faced with the same problem, say say a social problem, a social service problem, will address it the same way. You know, so when you it does so when when you have people talking about abstractions, they can easily, you know, go out into the stratosphere in different directions. You know, and I believe in government. I believe, I, I hate government. Get away, get away, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, you, you give them a, a real problem, a real homeless person, a real family in need, or whatever. They'll say, you know, how can we deal with this problem? And and they'll tend to come at it the same way. And so, so I think there are a couple of things that need to happen here. First of all, we have to accept. We have to abandon the premise that there is one correct way of doing anything. Let communities and the people within them, within a broad range, do things in their own ways and figure it out for themselves. Not only that, give them the resources to do it. And not only that, not only put, not, not only don't put churches in the penalty box, these sort of abstract notions of the separation of churches. But be extremely tolerant of, you know, any. The purpose of free society isn't to somehow disempower religion. <laughs> so, so, so give the resources and authority to the community, and there'll be all these people in the distance who who distrust. Um, People, you know, well, what if Attila the Hun is running the community, yeah. or you know, or what if you know B- Bob Jones decides to serve everybody poison Kool Aid, or you know, whatever? Uh, um, so you can have a distant uncle somewhere says we are going to uh, we're going to periodically look at how well you're doing, but we're not going to tell you how to do it. Fine. That engenders broader trust, too, because you have a kind of a distant oversight. But the most important thing is empowerment of the community. 
empowerment of the churches. Let people feel that they have both the resources and the authority to solve a problem, to own the problem. And, uh, you know, and authority has a very, is a gravitational force. You give people authority, you give, give someone else authority even. People will migrate to that person and say, yes, let's talk about how to solve that problem. Yeah. All of a sudden, somebody's got that responsibility as well um, that, that comes hand in hand. Um, now, moving when uh, towards the end of the book, you talk about you know how moving back to the exercise of ex- everyday freedom is uh, is quote not so much a reform as a complete change in direction akin to the progressive era's abandonment of laissez faire end, end quote. You make this argument in a way that has a great deal of appeal to both secular and religious audiences. The sort of problems that we're talking about that everyday freedom seeks to address are everyday problems that everybody's going to recognize as they read this book. Right. Um, they, will, they will have their own, they'll be able to make their own connections. And this argument has appeal, I think, both to secular and religious audiences, but you make two allusions in that final chapter that I noticed. Uh, one to George Washington's sort of providential understanding of, of America, and another to uh, Pope St. John Paul II's understanding of the human person. Um, and that provides like a very rich anthropology for, for understanding these questions. How do you understand the role of faith in a flourishing society? We've talked about the essential role religious communities can play in rebuilding this sort of everyday freedom. But, but I, I sense I – and again, again the, the argument I think, I, think, I think works for both secular and religious people – but there are there are theological strains to it that I see that that I'm 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 curious about how that's informed your own understanding. Well, again, I'm the son of a minister. Yeah. <laughs> so, so 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 I'm I'm you know I'm very much a believer in this. You know, I think to me what is most upsetting uh, about the current framework of law and government is is that it doesn't honor our sense of right and wrong it it doesn't give us doesn't give each of us agency to live our values values are everything you know there's this presumption in the current legal system that subjectivity is the enemy of freedom that, that Doing things because you believe them to be right or sensible is somehow the enemy of freedom. And what I argue in everyday freedom is that subjectivity is the essence of freedom. And and people need the authority. Freedom is authority. The authority to do to live your life as you wish your values. People need the dignity of that they need to be able to have a faith a faith in if you're a christian in in, in christianity and its values and and its its sense of service i mean which was an incredibly radical innovation of of christianity you know sort of the take care of the sermon on the mount and all that yeah. is and 
and that gives people a sense of meaning and it just creates an incredibly rich society and you look at the the communities that have that are more homogeneous uh, that that are organized around religion, uh, you know, the Mormons in Utah, or maybe the Hasidic Jews in Williamsburg, or whatever. Those communities have a have a richness because everyone is living their faith, and they rely on others to live their faith, and the faith gives them meaning and pride, and in this legal system that replaces human agency with, you know, just follow the rules is, it, it, it has created this wave of populist fervor that I, that clearly explains the appeal of Donald Trump. It's not because he's a person of faith or religion or trustworthy or anything else. It's because because he is basically disdainful of the current system, and many Americans are too, and for good reason. Yeah, there's a there's a there's a portion. I think it's in the theory of moral sentiments, and this is this is something when I thought I thought about this this focus on subjectivity, and I was thinking there's a lot in this book that reminds me a lot of. Uh, Leonard Reed of the Foundation of Economic Education, he had a notion of a, a freedom philosophy that was that was it was you know Leonard Reed has opinions about 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 government and and that government should be small and less intrusive, but it was really more robust about that. It was about people acting in the world, having that freedom to to act from their subjectivity. And there's a there's a portion of Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments where he's he he, he does a little digression. And Smith says, you know, at some point, you know, that, you know, the reader might object to this very um, – to this going back to sentiments and say, you know, we have, you know, you know, basically God tells us in scripture what's good and what's bad and why not just follow that? Why go through all of this, all of this sentiments and fellow feeling and the rest of it? And he appeals to the golden rule. And he says, you know, when, when Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, there's an introspective task there, is you have to think through what I would have done unto me. And you have to enter that sort of space of considering other people and considering their freedom of action in this. And I think, I think, I think th this book really resonated with me because of those connections, because I think, I think it really comes through how, cent how central the moral case is for freedom. So true. And people don't appreciate, I just haven't thought through, how complex accomplishment is, how complex human relations are, how complex the brain processes those things. It's all done in our unconscious. You know, we see what we see. All these people trying to repress us, you know, you must think this way, you must sign this statement or whatever. It, it, you can you can repress it, but you can't in fact cancel it. Because we people people feel and see these things. They need reciprocity. They need the golden rule. Anything that doesn't comply with that is almost by definition unfair. 
so that people asserting their rights and getting things that everybody knows aren't fair because other people aren't getting them. It, it's, it's the stuff of revolution. People hate it, right? So, so, so freedom, freedom is the, it's the freedom to own your beliefs. I mean, values, a society is its values. And its values are like Christian values. They're, they're free agency. Christians are free to sin. And, you know, we're, 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 you know, we're not in a position where we, we simply follow the rule book as Christians. Uh, and, and it's the fact that we make these choices for ourselves not to sin or to do things that we think are right, or to forgive others who do and hope that they will continue to do what's right. It's all of those complex human things that freedom is supposed to, and human agency is supposed to give us, and people in America feel correctly that it has largely been taken away, particularly in their active life, in their jobs, in their communities, Maybe not so much in their families. Um, so, I, I think I, I think we're overdue for a revolution back to freedom. But it's not what the conservatives said. Say it's not to get rid of government. It's not to blow it apart, which is what Trump says he wants to do. Is to is to restore the rightful role of human responsibility within government. Yeah, as well as the rightful role of human responsibility in our daily lives and in our jobs, and it, it, it's you know America has this vast reservoir of good people and goodwill and people who know what's right and wrong, and everybody knows it's broken. Everybody knows, but no one has a vision about how to bring it back and unleash this goodwill and unleash this energy. And so what I'm trying to do with this little 84-page book is in the simplest way, because I, in my other books, I have lots of stories and arguments and stuff. I try to strip away as many stories as I can. I only put them in when I think they needed to illustrate a point. Strip away argument. I'm declaring what freedom is. I am declaring what that framework is. I'm declaring that the current system has to be abandoned. And if someone disagrees with me, I challenge them to tell me why, tell me why I'm wrong and to come up with their own system. Because I don't think, I think we have to go back. This is basics. You know, I'm going back to the basics of the constitution and uh, you know, all, all the things we studied and the way freedom should work. Yep. Well, it's an absolutely stirring declaration. It's a it's a riveting read. This is again uh, for listeners. This is everyday freedom, designing the framework for a flourishing society. We will link to it uh, in the show notes. I would encourage. It is so. There are so many books today that you read, and you're like, ah, you know what? There's some great ideas in here, but it could have been it could have been it could have been half as long. This is not one of those. This is this is <laughs> this is this is short but powerful. Um, thank you so much for for uh, for for giving it to the world for us to consider and for us to wrestle with and for us to 
to to critique and embrace and 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 it's a it's a it's a it's a conversation starter on where we are in America today. Thank you, and hopefully to mobilize, absolutely to come together because this this reform will not happen within Washington because it changes the status quo. So, like all big change, it has to come from the outside. So, I'm hoping to engage religious communities, other communities around the country behind the idea of basic overhaul to restore the freedom to be ourselves. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with us, Philip. And uh, and thank you all for listening. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.